the overarching theme of entrepreneurship. It's like toddlers. It's like, oh, you think you have an idea for how this is going to go? <laughs> Here is what you're going to do next. It's time to pivot, bitch. <laughs> like... <laughs> oh, you wrote a business plan? How cute. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you needed to not be doing that race anymore. But you kept saying, it's just one more marathon. It's just one more marathon. <laughs> you would not let it go. And I think you were a little bit mad at us, which I understand. Like I was. <laughs> you... Um, but we manhandled you into the van that we were driving and we're like, no, Jamie, you can't run another marathon right now. (laughs) It has to come a point where you have to realize that adaptability only goes so far, right? You can push yourself to discomfort, but you shouldn't push to ultimate pain or ultimate suffering. Hello, and welcome to Shiny Objects. I'm Jamie King. And I'm Elise Mason. We're founders who also happen to be cousins and best friends. After over a decade of working together, we're pulling back the curtain and getting raw and real about the messy business of work and the reality and sometimes fantasy of what it's like to be your own boss. Hey, Jamie. Hi, Elise. How are you? I am good. How are you? I I'll admit I'm feeling a little tired today and no other reason than just life (laughs) just life it happens man life really sneaks up on you and you're like shoot too much yeah I'm looking forward to an evening of just a little bit of chill and I'm not sure entirely when that is but I'm looking forward to it I was gonna say do you have something on the calendar that doesn't sound like your life (laughs) I don't. But I am hopeful that maybe this weekend that I'll have an evening of just complete chill once well, once Colby goes to bed, (laughs) because there's no chance of that before, before he's actually asleep. Speaking of Colby, I I have some unimportant, um, important news to share with you today that um, is, is slightly different than a lot of my unimportant, important news has seemed to be lately, which has been all like, you know, adventures and crazy things. But This one is about toddlers and slash being a toddler parent and Instagram. I got tagged in this giveaway post on this account that I had actually never heard of before. It's very big, so I feel like I live under a rock. It's called Big Little Feelings. And a friend of mine tagged me in this like mom getaway, like giveaway sort of post. And I went on the account and they're huge. They have over like 500,000 followers. Um, So there you go. Um, and they they say that they are uh, toddler experts, like that's their description. And I love a lot of the content on here. Um, and I will say, like, I find that there is like tips throughout their content that feel really helpful and sometimes make me feel like I can relate to these things. Um, but some of them, I, I I will just admit this, some of them cause me a little bit of anxiety because it's stuff that I've already done. And I'm like, oh, God. I'm doing this wrong. <laughs> I've been doing this wrong and I'm going to like set him, you know, up for uh, life in the wrong way because I haven't responded to his feelings properly or <laughs> this tantrum properly or, oh God, I did this thing. And I know that's not the point of the account, but it's just so weird how this stuff can like really get to you and just, I don't know, and just make you feel so like, oh my God, oh my God, I've done it all wrong for so long. 
Oh my gosh, that stuff can be so triggering, even if it's not intended to shame. And like the tips in it, some of them are so, 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 so good. A lot of it's about how to give them choices so that they feel in control when you're in the power struggle, which I feel like is our everyday right now. And that's something that we try to do. But gosh, some of it is like you do things and you wonder to yourself, like, maybe I should be doing this differently, or maybe my language isn't supportive, or maybe that's not how I should respond to this. Um, And I think I often know those things in the back of my head, but the reaction to some of that behavior, it just feels like natural. And it's hard to change, you know, things, your response to things, um, especially in the moment when it feels really tense or emotional, for instance, tantrums. And I kind of got in a rabbit hole of reading some of their content last night. And I was like, oh my God, I need to like be more careful with how I respond to his tantrums or his feelings or his fears. Um, There was like a whole post about like how to respond to fears. And um, gosh, I just, I want to do it better, but man, (laughs) like I I should probably not read all this stuff. This is why I never read, like read any parenting books for this very reason. (laughs) What are you supposed to do with their fears? Kind of the same way you address feelings. And I'm sure you've heard this before because I feel like I've heard this before in other channels also. If they're really uh, fearful of something to acknowledge the fear and basically be like, oh yeah, I could see why you might think this is really scary. And then talk it out versus like, don't be afraid or it's okay, which is what I tend to do. I'm just like, oh, you don't need to be afraid of that. Like, don't worry, which is what they say, avoid. (laughs) Which is like basically (laughs) what I do every time. So yeah, so it was interesting. I got down that rabbit hole and I just thought, oh God, oh God. I I know that you have a kid who is not a big hugger also. And Colby is, he's sort of somewhere in the middle. He's not a super hugger. And even with Casey and I, he's, he doesn't like dole them out by the the dozens he's very conservative with his hugging and I know that I think when I was a kid and sort of growing up my the way that I really learned was oh give that person a hug or give that person a hug and I'm a super affectionate person and I like to give hugs but I'm trying not to push that on him and sometimes that thing takes over in your brain where you're like just give them a hug (laughs) be sweet and I have to really stop myself and I'm trying really hard to avoid that and instead be like it's okay if you don't want to give them a hug right now yeah but that's hard it's hard especially with like relatives the hugging thing is something we've had to really work around my four-year-old does not like to give hugs we do a lot of high fives instead of hugging And sometimes she won't even do a high five. I will admit I have resorted to bribing her to give people high fives, which (laughs) is one thing that as a parent, I really try not to go down that road because I feel like it's such a slippery slope. I have occasionally been like, I will give you fruit snacks if you give this person a high five. And that usually gets the job done. And sometimes just acknowledging that other person and not hurting their feelings ends up being worth it to me even though I feel like most adults should not be offended if a toddler doesn't want to high five or hug them, they should understand that it's just how little kids work. But yeah, I don't know. Some people get offended. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard because and I don't know what her communication is around it. But it's hard because I don't I don't know, you know, in that moment, like why he doesn't want to give somebody a hug, but he just often doesn't want to. (laughs) And we have another friend whose child 
is like the most snuggly little bear ever. He will just koala to you willingly and open and it's lovely. He snuggles and he wants to wrap his arms around you and he'll squeeze you. And it just, oh my gosh, my heart always feels so warm. And I'm like, I understand why people want this. Like, yeah. Oh, it's so nice. Um, but I have to get my fill from him because Colby certainly <laughs> doesn't do that with me. I'll ask him for a hug sometimes and he'll just flat out say no. And every now and then he'll give me one, but it's pretty sparing and it's pretty short. And so I, I also have to try not to get my feelings hurt by it and just understand that like, that's whatever boundary he's setting, that's his boundary right now. I'm trying. I want to squeeze you and hug you and squish you and kiss you and all those things. I just want to be all wrapped around, but I have to reel myself in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so much work to do around redefining your own boundaries and respecting other boundaries, no matter how small or irrational they seem. Yeah. <laughs> so much yeah. work. Uh, anyways, yeah, toddlers, man, they're confusing. <laughs> and these big little feelings that account. I was like, I have big little feelings too. <laughs> Why isn't he respecting my feelings? Yeah. (laughs) Those kinds of parenting rabbit holes are really dangerous. I always end up with some kind of conflicted emotional state afterwards. Yeah. I have some unimportant, important news for you that is really, this might be the most unimportant thing we've ever shared on this podcast. (laughs) It just feels like something I have to tell you. Tell me. (laughs) So you probably remember that at summer camp, I guess it was obviously last year, we got graham crackers for s'mores Mm. and we got some cinnamon graham crackers. And both you and I were really disappointed by the cinnamon graham crackers because they've gone low sugar or something. They're not right. They're not not right. right. Yeah. Yeah. They used to be coated in sugar. And now it's just the barest little hint of cinnamon. There's no actual layer of sugar that you can lick off of the graham cracker. So we have cinnamon graham crackers in our house right now, and they don't count. My kids love them, and I keep opening the box because I really want them to be the cinnamon graham crackers of our childhood, and they are just wrong. Everything about them is wrong, and I am upset, and I would like to lodge a complaint with the makers of graham crackers for trying to be healthier or whatever. I feel the same. And I also wonder though, if we have invented that too. <laughs> Maybe this recipe stayed the same and we invented that they were, I don't know. But as a substitute, another throwback from childhood eating that also involves cinnamon is this is so random. We were just talking about this yesterday in my house one of my old favorite treats and it was something that my mom would sometimes make us on a weekend morning and I mean how low effort and easy but also delicious and it just it felt like the biggest treat in the world to me but heating up a tortilla with butter and cinnamon and sugar oh, oh good it's so good and I was thinking about I haven't had that in 20 years probably <laughs> and I was like god I should make that that just sounds it sounds really right. <laughs> <laughs> Tortillas with butter and cinnamon sugar always remind me of being in Baja as yes. kids. Yes. Because we would get yes. those fresh tortillas. And I remember our moms would do that for us. And it was the best thing to run down to the beach with a hot, melty, cinnamon, sugary tortilla in your hand. 
Oh, it's so much better than Cinnamon Toast Crunch. It's oh my so gosh. much better. No comparison. <laughs> so good. I'm glad that you have memories of cinnamon sugar tortillas too. I'd forgotten all about them. I hadn't gone down that path in a long time. And part of it is because my mom used to have this. It was from Pampered Chef. I remember that company. And she bought one of these. It was like a shaker, right? And it had like a mesh like strainer thing on top. But its sole purpose was to like mix your cinnamon and sugar into it. And then you had this perfect proportion of cinnamon and sugar that would sprinkle out of this stupid mesh strainer thingy. Um, and ever since I don't have one of those and I don't want one in my kitchen, um, I just, <laughs> I'm just not sure I can like proportion out, you know, the cinnamon and sugar the correct way. <laughs> oh my gosh. My mom had that too. <laughs> I think she still has it. <laughs> it was like beige. It was like, had like a handle and like this little, it almost looked like a tiny mesh strainer on the top. That's like what I remember about it. And I remember that was like the creator of my cinnamon and sugar tortilla. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you want that in your kitchen? <laughs> I don't know. It just feels so silly. I don't know. It just, but I think of it. I think of it a lot, which is really weird um, to admit out loud. <laughs> <laughs> what's, the, what's the silliest kitchen gadget that you have in your kitchen? Ooh, um, I would probably say our egg maker, which we use all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like a little spaceship and you can put the eggs in and you can poach them, boil them, etc. And it works really well. And we registered for it and we ended up getting two, <laughs> which was kind of random, but we gave, we gave one away and we use the one all the time. The reason that I wanted it was so that we could have poached eggs all the time, but more often than not, it ends up just being a hard boiling device. And I wish it were more of a poached egg device but the silly part about it is that I am too afraid to operate it because taking the lid off is very steamy and very hot. And I just feel like I will fail at it. And so I don't do it. And so that's become Casey's thing. And he always just defaults to, to hard boils. I mean, I don't make bold enough requests, I guess, but <laughs> <laughs> that's why it's silly. Well, I want one of those. That sounds great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just want poached eggs all the time for the rest of my life. Yeah. So good. I have one of those little egg timers that changes color. So if you put it in the water with the eggs and it changes color and it tells you when it's soft or medium or hard. It's not mm. super precise, but it's usually close enough. My husband makes fun of me for having it, but I love it and I use it all the time. And I think it's a very worthwhile investment of $6. Hmm. That doesn't sound silly at all. I think our egg maker was much more money than that. <laughs> but I didn't buy it, so I don't know. <laughs> Once I bought a, a really stupid kitchen gadget. It was essentially a little bottle, but it had a twirly wand inside. And you could squeeze the handle on the top to make the wand inside spin. And it was basically a salad dressing maker. But instead of having to whisk by hand, you would just squeeze the top. Hmm. And it was really dumb and didn't work very well. And my partner also made a lot of fun of me for buying that. And we no longer own it. I, I think of the egg cooker <laughs> because it takes up some space in the cabinet. And it's like, yeah, you can just put eggs in a pot, right? And hard boil them. It's kind of like a rice cooker, but eggs. I was going to say, it sounds like a rice cooker, which is such a great tool to have. I yes. love my rice cooker. Rice cookers are not silly. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Tangents. Yeah. Whoa. It went from like cinnamon sugar shakers to strange and fun kitchen gadgets. But I guess it kind of works because we often buy those gadgets 
because we're trying to make something better, our lives better by doing something that brings into our kitchen, like not having to whisk by hand, more efficiency, rising above that challenge of whisking your dressing. We really wanted to talk about what it's meant for both of us to adapt um, to different situations. And I think a natural place to start, and maybe because you and I just recently had a conversation about this, and I think I was feeling concerned and also a little bit sad about the perception of our rebrand in a way. (laughs) Um, Because we adapted, we rebranded, we launched with a new name, a new packaging, like we boldened our messaging and we changed a lot of things. Like we really did change a lot of things about the business. And I'm really proud of the changes that we've made. But I think what I was communicating to you is that my frustration was that I have heard from a handful of people who have been part of our community for a very long time that they saw this rebrand as like a complete pivot um, from where we had been. And to me, the community, like the piece of it that has always sort of been there was this aspect that we brought this community together to be a place where um, everybody, no matter their fitness level, their, you know, body shape, size, age, gender, blah, 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 etc., belonged. If you like to move, like we welcomed you with open arms and you belonged. And that was always a core tenant of what we built. And I think it got lost somewhere. And we admitted that we felt like our messaging, our stories got muddy. But I feel like that core tenant, like the people that have been here, like I just, I felt sad that they didn't see that or didn't recognize that, that that, that didn't change. We're just getting bolder about how we say it and also about how we actually externally communicate it and push it and don't shy away from like the complicated conversations or points of views around it, if that makes sense. And so I wanted to talk about that. Yeah, it's funny. If anything, our rebrand was this extreme exercise and adaptation and then we had to adapt on top of the adaptation when first the pandemic hit but yeah we started these conversations what a year ago now so back when everything looked really different than it does now yes and it was really invigorating to be talking about emboldening our messaging because like you said we we gotten really watered down honestly we'd been so focused on just being inclusive, 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 that we had stopped really standing for anything, at least as a brand. I think both you and I stood for something personally, but I know it's always been a weird line to walk between what our personal convictions were and then what the brand stood for. And so in the process of just being like, yes, everybody is welcome, we really stopped having any kind of strong voice in anything. And it was exciting to talk about how we could make our voice strong again, how we could really have convictions, have convictions and stand behind them, not apologize for it. And one of the things that we decided not so much on the messaging front, but on the business front was that we were really going to center the business around the studio and around in-person experiences like our summer camp and other things. And I think we were both really energized by that direction. We're going to do less influencer marketing and really not have that be our North Star in terms of where we focused our energies. And then the pandemic hit and that focus on 
in-person experiences and classes was suddenly not maybe where we should put all of our attention and focus and resources. So that was kind of a gut punch. I mean, a lot about the pandemic is a gut punch, but we adapted. We went back to digital, but in a very different direction. And while all this was happening, we were also working on this big messaging rebrand. And then George Floyd was murdered. And so our rebrand kind of came on the heels of all of the social uprising and protest in late May and early June. And I hate to think that people look at our rebrand, which takes a stronger stance on issues like equality and inclusivity. I hope that nobody's looking at us trying to take advantage of the situation because the truth is that was in the cooker long before. That's that's what makes me feel concerned and or sad is that because our messaging got so watered down before that like those things that we've always said and stood for, we just didn't say them loud enough or strong enough and they got so watered down that no one could see them anymore. And then when we rebranded, it just felt like this is just something we're responding with. And it, it wasn't that at all. And I know we talked about that like offline and I was just voicing to you, this adaptation has been so interesting because when you're doing something like that, you never expect the world to just basically turn upside down, <laughs> like right in the middle of everything. And then it's like, do you not move forward or do you sit still? No, you move forward, right? You do it. And and we did it. And I'm proud that we did, even though our adaptations had to be adapted to go with the times. <laughs> but it's funny because, as you said, we wanted to center our North Star around coming together in person, in person events and our studio offerings and our classes. And in some ways, even though all of that has really gone digital, we are doing that if you think about it. And I am really proud of what we've been able to do given the time and the circumstances because we do bring people together just as we wanted. And it's not around, you know, like put this product out or do this. It's like really meaningful conversations. Our activist panels are incredible and we bring people together. And yes, it's on Zoom, but (laughs) we're bringing people together there and we're bringing people together through movement. So in some ways, Um, we're really sticking to our guns. It's just, it looks a little bit different and it's on screen. (laughs) Yeah, that's very true. We really have kept that North Star. It's just a different forum than we might've anticipated when we were first planning this out forever ago. But isn't that the overarching theme of entrepreneurship? It's like toddlers. It's like, oh, you think you have an idea for how this is going to (laughs) go? Here is what you're going to do next. It's time to pivot, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you wrote a business plan? How cute. (laughs) Here's your pivot. That's what I feel like. Yeah. It's all those things that you talk about with mothership too. Yeah, you can have this perfect plan. I love that you're still using that word. (laughs) Did I say mothership? I didn't even know. You did. It's so good. (laughs) It was the right word. Uh, I think mothership is just, that's it. Yeah, it's going to be my new thing. Oh gosh, that's funny. It's so similar in how it smacks you around and sends you back to reality. It's your best well-laid plans. Sometimes it's like, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, right. You're going to do that. You better think and you better think fast, which is, uh, yeah, the phase I'm in right now with being a mom and being a business person. Everything is like, think fast, think on your feet. Be ready to respond to whatever situation um, 
and make sure <laughs> that you have enough tools in your toolbox to do it. <laughs> We've talked about this in lot previous episodes, but it's in some ways it's about being open-minded and allowing your ego to not get in the way of the things that might be like right in front of you and to hold on to something that's maybe not working or um, to hold on to something just because it's what you're comfortable with and what you know. It's like, you got to hug everybody thing. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not totally comfortable. You're not going to hug grandpa, but (laughs) I'm going to let it go. I'm adaptable. Speaking of mothership (laughs) and speaking of adaptability, we have entered this very, for me, uncharted territory of potty training. (laughs) And, oh man, and I had no plans for it. So uh, I didn't, I have, I, I still to this day have not read a single like parenting specific book, not one. I was sent a bunch of baby books and I will be 100% honest. I'm sorry for those who sent them to me. I have never read them. (laughs) And I had a friend tell me about some book that they had read and uh, I feel like it was called Oh Crap or something. It had a cutesy title, something about pooping. And I heard this tip about naked weekends. And then I ran into some neighbors. We were at the park and our dogs play and they have little ones and their little one is younger than my little one. And he is pottying on the potty pretty regularly and a good deal younger. And then they told us like what they had done. And it was this very strategic march towards the potty. And I had that moment where I felt super inadequate. Like, God, I should have like had a strategy. Like I should have thought of this. Like I should be a better parent, (laughs) but I'm realizing that really what it's about, at least in our household, this potty training thing is it's very much Colby is in charge (laughs) And I'm having to adapt everything around this new pottying schedule. And he's nowhere near like potty trained. Let me just say that loud and clear. He's almost two and a half. He will be two and a half next month. And I don't want anyone to get the wrong impression. We've had like a few peas in the potty, um, never a poop. And often he'll just sit there for like an hour. And then if he finally pees, um, this isn't like, oh, I have to go. And then we get on the potty and there's like some kind of success. So that's the stage we're in. We're pretty far um, from any kind of like actual like potty training, but it's a start. He's sitting on it and he's peed in it a few times, but I feel like it has adapted. Like we've had to adapt everything around this new like potty routine because for instance, on Sunday morning, um, I really wanted to take a yoga class and I kept looking at the clock, but I was sitting on the potty with Colby <laughs> hold it. I have to hold both of his hands. Um, <laughs> which is, I never imagined I'd be holding hands with someone while they're going to the bathroom, but that's mothership for you. And it's good for me. It's good for me. It tests me in new ways. I would say my ability to just be like, I'm flexible. I can do this. I can sit here for over an hour and be patient and be encouraging (laughs) and make you feel safe and supported and okay. That's brutal. (laughs) (laughs) I do a lot of hand holding while someone small poops and I got to admit it's not like my finest moments as a parent because every fiber of my being just wants to get the fuck out of that room but it's <laughs> so stinky yeah yeah motherhood is something that really I think the whole at least for me the whole journey of it has been one giant adaptation <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I don't know. I was thinking back the other day to when Colby was born and in hindsight, you look back and you think, oh my God, why didn't I do that differently? Why was I so hard on myself? Or why did I do X, Y, Z? But God, I think back to that. And I, I remember that transition for me was like, it was tough. I had a really tough first couple of months. And something I recognize about myself um, is that sometimes when things are really hard for me, I don't know that I show it in a way that people totally can respond or react or offer to help. And I need to work on that. But also I think that with motherhood, that was really hard for me because everyone just looked at me and was like, oh, you're doing great. Go superwoman, go. And I was like, actually I'm drowning. And they'd be like, you got this. And I'd be like, uh, I don't. And you know, and everyone thinks you're great, but it was really hard. I really struggled with the isolation and the loss of my previous identity. I wanted to still do all of the same things that I had done before and also be like a phenomenal mom (laughs) and, 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 (laughs) and that's impossible. And I'm two and a half years in and I still struggle with that. Yeah. I hear you. As you know, I've had a really, really tough first year, year and a half, probably. And it's interesting to hear you say that because I remember coming to visit you when Colby was new. He must have been just a few weeks old. I remember I was still really pregnant with Levi. So it must have been in that little window of time. Mm -hmm. And I remember because, and of course, this is me projecting because I remember on the plane to get to you, I was like thinking, oh my gosh, I remember so viscerally how miserable I was and just how lost and tired and dark I felt when I, when I was very newly postpartum. And then when I got there, you and Casey seemed so chill and easy, like, oh yeah, this is no big deal. And I was like, oh, okay, they're doing great. That's amazing. All this to say, I think you do a really good job of (laughs) just showing up and and making it work and fooling even people closest to you that you're doing just fine. But yes, it's so isolating. It's so hard. I lost all the things that felt most important to me, like my sense of freedom, my sense of spontaneity, and learning to adapt to that new reality is really fucking hard. It's so hard because you were first. I I had no idea, like I had no idea how to respond or to react or to care or to support in a way that made sense because I had never been through it. And now I understanding that sort of seeing that from the other way, I don't mean this in a harsh way. I just have such low expectations of getting support from people that haven't been through it. And not because they're not capable, but because I'm just like, they may just not know how to support you through this time or ways to be like, I'm here for you. And I know that this is like a really tough journey or transformation. It's just weird. I remember you were going through that, but I just didn't have any concept of like how to be supportive because I just really had no concept. Yeah. And even hearing that you went through that too. I mean, I had been through it and I came to visit you and I was completely fooled. I even had a moment of, wow, Jamie's doing this so well. Did I do this wrong? What did I do wrong that I couldn't adapt to early motherhood as successfully as she's doing? So I was really in awe of how together you seemed at that time. Um, which just goes to show, yeah, we all need help. And that's the funny part is I still struggle now. I still struggle almost two and a half years in. And I have certain situations that like really get to me. And I've really, and one of the things I've really had to do is I've had to remind myself constantly over and over and over is that 
a lot of times people don't even, they just don't understand. Like they they can't understand. There's no capacity for them to understand how you're feeling. And sometimes because I can't articulate it, <laughs> I just don't even know how to say it. And um, there's no way that they can just understand out of nowhere. There's instances in my life where I just feel like I'm always excluded from things or I don't get invited or I get kind of passed over. I still struggle with it. And it's some of my friends, they don't know, they don't have any idea and it's not their fault. And it's, but it's such a hard thing to communicate because it's so vulnerable. I have said things like, it's okay. I know that like I come with more (laughs) stuff or scheduling with me is harder because like I have bedtimes and bath times and this and that. And, um, and I get it. Yeah. The spontaneity piece, it kind of went out the window, but sometimes you just want people to be like, Oh, it's cool. No problem. You just want to feel like you're still in it. And that that can be really hard. You become in this whole journey, a new person. (laughs) There's no way to avoid that. I don't think. And your priorities become different but you're still yourself, right? There's still like this core of you. And sometimes it feels like that gets lost because people just look at you like, oh, well, now you're a mom. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And now you just love to spend your time making popsicles or whatever. (laughs) Which I do like to do. I do like to make my frozen treats, but (laughs) there's more to me than that, okay? (laughs) In some strange way, I think that running 100 milers has really shown me what adaptability capabilities I actually have. And I think it's like the time when you've reminded me so many times, like whether it's from running or entrepreneurship or just life in general, that I have this sort of ability to sit in the gray area. I think you told me once I'm comfortable with ambiguity and I always think of that. And I always think to myself, that's very true. I can thrive in that kind of situation. And while I may be uncomfortable, I am really good at internalizing things and being like, I'm totally fine. I'm totally fine. I'm totally fine. And so like, maybe sometimes people don't, you know, perceive that something is as challenging for me as it really is. And I feel like when I started running 100 milers, and I failed to finish them the first, I don't know, three, or more, I can't even remember now, I DNF'd. I think what I learned through that was what it meant to be adaptable to the situation and then to get back out. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you bring up your 100 milers, especially those first couple attempts, because I saw such a huge change in you from the first DNF to the second one. The first one, and I hope you don't mind me sharing this here, but... (laughs) You made it to 76 miles, which was amazing. It was, God, I don't know, the wee hours of the morning somewhere in the mountains. Casey and I basically had to force you to stop because you weren't in good shape. You needed to not be doing that race anymore. But you kept saying, it's just one more marathon. It's just one more (laughs) marathon. (laughs) You would not let it go. And I think you were a little bit mad at us, which I understand. I was. (laughs) Um, but we manhandled you into the van that we were driving and we're like no Jamie you can't run another marathon right now (laughs) and I stand by that decision it was the right one it was the (laughs) The second one you made it to mile 80 and again it was the wee hours in the morning we were out in the wilderness and I think you sat down and were wrapped up in a blanket and having something hot to eat or drink and this time you were like 
I guess I'm going to just go to sleep now. Or <laughs> you sat there for a while thinking about it, but you definitely made the decision for yourself. And to me, that was so powerful because you've got this incredible like drive to win and finish and compete. And to see you acknowledge, no, this is where I need to stop today. I think that was really, really powerful. I hate ever referring to those first two races as DNFs or attempts because you ran 76 and 80 miles. And it's absurd to call that anything less than a success. So that's my own personal two cents on all of that. That, like everything else, was a really interesting lesson in how to be adaptable, but also how to overcome you know, that challenge, which was in some ways my ego, the first one, I mean, just sorry, gross, but I like threw up purple squid ink shortly thereafter. You guys got me in the van. I hadn't eaten. I couldn't eat. I wasn't digesting. I wasn't drinking water. I would have been in really bad shape had you guys not manhandled me into a van. And I think it's important to be able to be adaptable. And I think that's the thing about um, ultra runners is we always have to be adaptable. You have to manage your low or embrace the highs and manage the lows. And that's the saying I say to myself all the time, but there also has to come a point where you have to realize that adaptability only goes so far, right? You can push yourself to discomfort, but you shouldn't push to ultimate pain or like ultimate suffering. And I think for me, that was my biggest lesson. And I think it boils back down to business and motherhood also, you can adapt to a certain degree, but if you're pushing yourself towards like actual pain or suffering, then maybe it's time to realize, okay, this has gone too far. Maybe this piece just isn't working. And then maybe the next time I need to adapt in a different way (laughs) Um, or rethink this whole thing, which in some ways I did because when I finally did complete my first hundred miler, my nutrition, my hydration, just everything, it wasn't based on my fitness. It was like I had changed everything about the way I did that race And it wasn't about pushing through suffering to finish. It was pushing through because mentally and physically, I felt good enough to do it. It's adapting, but adapting in a way that's smart and works. When people hear ultra runners, they just think you have to keep pushing through. You have to do it till you're, you know, bent over and you throwing up on yourself or pooping your pants. It's like, no, no, no. You get smarter about how you race, how you run, how you run your business, how you run your household, you know, whatever. (laughs) Yeah so much growth it's really hard and it's really painful and sometimes it feels like the worst (laughs) like you'll never see the other side but ultimately you're right you get smarter you get better at it you find a way through and we're gonna keep adapting we're gonna keep adapting yeah we're doing this thing we're still here we weren't sure at the beginning of this podcast if we'd still be here here we are here we are And I'm sure I'll have updates on my adapting schedule as the potty training saga continues. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Shiny Objects. If you enjoyed it and want to hear more, we'd appreciate you subscribing and reviewing us on your podcast app of choice. We'd also love to hear what you're going through. Send a 30-second audio clip to hi at shinyobjects.live and we may feature you on a future podcast. Thanks for listening and come back soon.